0: It's always sad when the children leave, right, you feel kind of the energy in the room drop ever so slightly as their kind of nervous excitement about going just gets released through the doors. Um, And that's so much the experience of many of us. Um, It was, at least in New York City, the first week of public school. And uh, so we sent our oldest daughter, Madeline, to kindergarten uh, at PS84 this year. And I decided, uh, trying to be a good father, mostly, was trying to decide, you know, how could I help uh, begin to train my daughter in kind of disciplines and habits that I think would inculcate both um, a Christian approach to the world and be a good thing to learn. So um, I took her to school the first day. I said, "Mado, I have an assignment for you as we were going uh, through the subway. And she looked at me with a look that uh, fully presages what it will be like when she's a teenager. I said, I would like you to find three people to be kind to today. In kindergarten. And she said, Papa, it's only a half day. <laughs> I said, I know, but I would like you to find three people to be kind to. And we had gone to a play date to meet other kindergarten um, attendees. Uh, mostly it was nervous parents meeting one another, but the kids were playing. And I said, You know, there's Julie. Julie doesn't speak a lot of English yet. Uh, Madeline's in this kind of French English uh, dual language program in the uh, Kindergarten. I said, Julie is a French speaker. She doesn't have as a lot of English. Maybe you could help her. Or um, Adrian and his mom just got back from France uh, Friday morning. And he's starting school Monday. So maybe you could be kind to him as well. So we were chatting through the four or five students that we knew of how she could choose to be kind to them or be helpful. And um, when she came home, I, was, I picked her up. I said, so who were you kind today? And he said, nobody. Why? Well, she said, we just didn't have a lot of opportunity. We were sitting at tables, and we couldn't talk. <laughs> so the next day, I said, Madeline, you know, OK, let's reduce the opportunity. You know, OK, you're, at, you're in kindergarten. It's much more structured than preschool seemed to be. So how about you just try to find one person to be kind to today? I said, OK. So again, at the end of the day, we're eating dinner. I said, Mato, who were you kind to today? Who? Nobody. Can you think of anything that you did? Gracious, nicer. She said, I played with people. And that was about it. And so every day, we keep trying. And it struck me, uh, even at uh, the tender age of five, which she just recently turned and is so proud of having turned five, she thinks she grew as soon as that date flipped over. Um, Mado is still pretty, an inherently pretty selfish person as a five-year-old. And really, anybody who's ever taken care of small children know Though they may seem angelic, beatific, though they're charming and delightful in many ways, fundamentally, uh, particularly infants and toddlers are pretty self-centered, self-focused people. They want what they want. They want it when they want it. And if they don't get it, they get very frustrated. And much of what you do as a parent, I'm finding at least as a five-year-old so far, but I've been told it's true later, is that you're actually trying to work them out of that selfishness. And the reality is we aren't terribly successful because as selfish as motto may be, I see how incredibly selfish I am as well. And that brings us, I think, neatly into why Genesis 3 is so critical for us. Um, It's not just the story of the fall in all of its kind of grandeur and theological import, but it really reveals the desperate problem caused by a selfish heart. Uh, both for Adam and Eve, but for every person uh, throughout history. And so let me pray for us as we begin. Um, Father, how do we uh, speak of Adam and Eve in any um, way that doesn't uh, convict us, um, remind us of who we are, and um, remind us of all that we've heard about this story in the past? And so, Father, I pray for myself as well as for my brothers and sisters here at CBC. Um, Reveal yourself in this passage to us so that um, both your justice and holiness as well as your mercy and grace are apparent to us. Um, And then uh, reshape our hearts, I pray, so that one day we would have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, and that we would love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we would love our neighbors as ourselves to your glory. Amen. It's a fascinating story. I know, uh, yes, last week Dick looked at um, the second creation account in Genesis 2 and reflected on what does it mean to be people uh, created for community. It's good for people, for Adam not to be alone, how God perfectly made a partner for him. And some uh, period of time passes. We don't know how long. And you get this bizarre story. of Now, all of a sudden, the serpent is there, and he starts to speak kind of out of nowhere, right? And I'll just be honest, um, there's no really explanation in this text, at least of who the serpent is or what he's doing or what he's doing, talking, much less talking to Eve. Obviously, scriptures later go on to refer to the adversary, Satan, as the serpent. But um, what's fascinating, I think, in this passage is less the questions about who the serpent is and what he's about, because I don't think he's really that important overall. What's really fascinating is what's going on in Eve and Adam in this passage right so the serpent was there it was more craft and he begins to talk to Eve and he goes did god really say you must not eat from any fruit um from any tree in the garden and the woman says to the serpent very appropriately well we may eat a fruit of um we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden but god did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you shall die and the serpent then says well you certainly shouldn't die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you'll be like god knowing good and evil now What's fascinating is next what goes on in Eve's mind that sets up uh, human sin. I mean, you know, The serpent is talking, and that's fine and well and good. And Eve doesn't seem disturbed by it, so I'm not going to be disturbed by it either. Uh, but what happens in verse 6 is fascinating, right? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. When does sin enter the world? When does the perfect environment that God creates start to go terribly, terribly wrong? It's when Eve sees that the food was, uh, fruit was A, good for food, second, pleasing to eye, and then third, uh, desirable for gaining wisdom. Essentially, when she decides to evaluate the tree and the fruit based on her own criteria of what's good and then acts on it. Because up until that point, that was just the forbidden tree. right? God had said, this is a bad tree. Don't touch. Don't eat. Like, just leave it alone. And it's at the point when Eve goes, you know, I know he said it was bad, but it seems awfully good to me. It looks good, smells pretty, I bet it tastes good too, and the serpent says it'll make me wise. She essentially evaluates the fruit based on her own criteria of what goodness is, and then she chooses to act on it. Essentially what Eve does at that moment, right, is that she substitutes... Well, that's fantastic, thanks. That's really helpful. I can actually see the text better. Um, Eve substitutes her own judgment for God's judgment, right? What should be true is it's his evaluation of the tree that's the only evaluation that should really matter. God said, this is a bad tree. Don't eat it. That should be the only judgment that matters about the tree. But Eve goes, you know, mm. that's some good tree, right? Um, And that's the heart of, I think, what sin is. I'm not even convinced that this was a particularly magical tree or the tree had any special properties. Um, Because it strikes me in some ways, it could equally be, it was just a tree. And God said, just to create some boundaries and to demonstrate that I'm the Lord of this place and you are not, don't touch this one tree. And what made the tree the knowledge of good and evil is when Eve decides to take it and say, I'm going to decide what's good and I'm going to decide what's evil. And God may have said this is evil, but I'm deciding this is good. And she takes and she eats. And what's fascinating, right? If that's Eve's thought process, I'm going to decide what's good and what's evil. And God said it was evil, but I decided it was good. Adam doesn't even go that far because he's standing there with her, watching all this happen. And Adam basically goes, "I'm not going to even think about it. You decided it was good, so I'm going to decide it was good, right?" Adam was the first experience of peer pressure. It's like Eve really went, "Adam, come on, have a bite. Everybody's doing it." Um, and I think the problem for us, as you think about the reality of human sin and where sin enters the world is it begins when we doubt whether God's words to us are good, right? I mean, it's what the serpent was getting at. Did God really say that? And certainly he couldn't have meant that if he said it right. It, and it's, it's dealing with that problem that many of the structures of the church that we experience now have been designed to deal with, Right? Um, That's why we gather for Bible study, whether it's in Women's Women or why we uh, hear the word spoken on a Sunday or why we invite you to meditate on the scriptures during the course of the week. Um, Because what we're trying to remind ourselves on a daily basis and a weekly basis as we gather here and in small groups and uh, house churches is, yes, God actually did say it right? We're giving ourselves multiple opportunities to remind ourselves, as much as I don't like that he may have said it, as much as that it may limit me or pain me that he said it, he really did say it. And that's why we have Bible studies and personal studies and preaching. And then it's the importance of being in community with one another and the sharing that occurs in women's women in um, our dispersed churches as you begin to talk, as we um, listen to testimonies from one another, that we remind ourselves, not just that he said it, but that He said it, and it's actually a good word for us. right? That's what the purpose of testimony is. It's to say, I experienced such and such, but when I turned to God and actually obeyed and followed him, when I received the good news that he offered me, when I finally allowed myself to trust his promises, man, did I experience the sovereignty and the mercy and the grace and the love of God. And the entire structure of the church, in part, is designed to help us deal with the problem that Eve experienced. Did God really say that? And if he said it, certainly he couldn't have meant it. And if he meant it, it's a terrible thing. And for us to come back over and over again, so did God really say that? And to remind ourselves, yeah, he did. And he's trustworthy and he's good. And you can rely on him. Right? And I think um, in that moment of deciding, I'm going to decide what's good for myself. And I'm not going to trust God to do it is when the breakdown occurs. Because sin is not really, I think, a violation of a list of rules of what you did or failed to do, right? Ultimately, human depravity, human sin is a posture of the heart, which says, I'm going to choose what's right for myself. And I'm not going to acknowledge God as the sovereign Lord who reigns and rules, who has the right to determine for me what is good and what is evil, not out of some... Power grab by the Almighty, but instead, because He's the one who designed me, He knows me. He intends good for me, right? That's what Genesis one and two are, in part, trying to convey to us. What God intended was good. He wanted us to live in worlds that was filled with flourishing diversity and beauty. He gave the human, um, He gave the human race, meaningful work to do to cultivate and um, till the garden. He invited them into delightful relationship with one another as partners and agents together. Um, as his hand and arm in the world, he created this perfect thing for us. He wanted good. And that's why, in part, we submit to the way that God reveals himself in Scripture, because it's not just some arbitrary set of rules. It's not out of a refined sense of religiosity, or just because God's a little bit of a prude, but out of a deep, convictional belief that everything he intended for us was good. We say, we're going to follow that, because we know it will lead us to good, and not to evil. And so, um, if that's what happens to Paul, right, that uh, Adam and Eve essentially make an incredibly self centered rather than God centered set of choices, you begin to see the rest of the chapters explain how this affects every aspect of the world. It affects their relationship with God because they hide. And we saw that in verses 8 through 10, right? It's one of the most pathetic terrible, sad passages of scripture that I've ever read, right? Adam and Eve, essentially, they're like little children. They did something bad, and so they hide, right? It's exactly what you always hear parents say. It's too quiet in there now. Something must have gone wrong, right? So there's this beautiful image. It's cool, right? It's sometime after the sun has began to settle, and God just starts strolling through the garden, and I love the idea that before sin enters the world, God just casually began to walk around the world, because it was just so much fun for him, and I think when you go back to Genesis 1 next week, you're going to get a sense of God's delight in what he's created, and so he's just walking around enjoying the fruits and the trees, the animals that he's made, and Adam and Eve hide from him. Um, and it's the pattern, I think, that drives really the rest of scripture. You could interpret almost all of the story of the Old Testament, much of the new and really our entire lives as the story, right? We sin and therefore we hide. And then God starts to seek and lo and behold, he finds. We sin, we hide. God starts to search and then he finds. And it's as he's searching that God asks the first question that he's ever asked. I mean, if you think about God, questions don't come up very often. Like, what doesn't he know? What could possibly be puzzling him at that moment, right? The very first time God asks a question, the very first time that something is not as he intended it in the whole of eternity before the world began, the very first time that there's something which isn't exactly the way he wanted it, Right, and because questions come out of a sense of that, this isn't what I know, what I wanted, right? It's that sense of just, dis- where are you? It's the first question that God, the almighty and all-knowing ever asks, where are you? One author who, I can't remember who it was at this point, said it's the saddest question ever asked in scripture. When the almighty starts to search for the creation that he loves. And really, um, if Eve's choice to take and to eat, um, which resulted in so much pain in the world, is answered at first by God's first question, where are you? Um, Another author pointed out um, that same language of take and eat is offered much later in scripture. And before take and eat becomes a word of blessing again, God's going to ask a different question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord God starts searching for his people immediately after they fall, right? That's part of the good news in this passage. It would have been easy for God to, you know, there's just two of them. Pop them out like a gnat or an ant on the table. I'm done. We could just do this all over. I mean, it wouldn't take a lot of work. And instead, God pursues them into the garden, physically enters their world, speaks to them in a way that they can comprehend, in a way that they can relate to. Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? It's so consistent with who God reveals himself to be in scripture, isn't it? He walks in the garden to go find him, those, that first couple, and... Centuries later, he'll be walking the earth again, still with the same question. Where are you? We sin and we hide. God seeks and then he finds. That's in part, I want to suggest, the experience that we're looking for as a church when we gather together in scripture and worship and community, right? When you read the scriptures, part of what we long for you to hear, what we all long to hear is God calling out page after page, where are you? Do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I care? How could I possibly forsake you or leave you? I cannot let you go, right? Hosea 11 uses this great imagery. How could I possibly let you go? I walked you out of Egypt like you were an infant. I held your hands as you learned to walk. Do you think I would let you go? It it, it drives Jesus um, to this world and then uh, to the random corners of uh, Galilee and Judea and Samaria where he meets with adulterous women and lost um, Pharisees, where he heals those who are far off and reaches out and touches the leper before he says, I am willing, to be clean. What we long for as we study scripture, whether it's individually in small groups or here at church is in part to hear God's voice asking, where are you? And then the point of being in community together is to challenge one another to respond with, here I am. Thank you for finding me rather than continuing to hide. But the reality is, every time we make that simple choice to um, put our decision making ahead of God's, to put ourselves at the center of the universe rather than acknowledging God as the center, um, it breaks our relationship with Him and we do hide. And not only do we hide, but it in fact. Um, impacts our relationship on each other and our communities as well because not only do we become people who hide we tend to become people who manipulate and our scripture reader did a great job catching that sense of manipulation right so who told you that you were naked and i want to say the devotional once again does an amazingly good job of getting to the heart of how sin disrupts our relationships i really commend it to you and invite you to read it carefully this week Um, Adam and Eve respond to their self-centeredness or express their self-centeredness in that moment by engaging manipulation, right? Who told you that you were naked? How did you know that you're this exposed? Why are you living in this kind of shame? And immediately Adam goes, it's her. You gave her to me. And she totally pressured me into it, right? I mean, he totally passes the buck here because he's manipulating the situation so that she takes the fall and he doesn't. And then Eve, of course, just follows that same path. It wasn't me. It was that serpent that you made. It, right? It's exactly the kind of behavior you watch in children. It's the kind of behavior you watch in government. It's the kind of behavior you watch in business today. Something went wrong. Who's responsible? And everyone goes, oh, it was them. <laughs> and it's not just that they're acting in a self-protective way, right? Like, oh, don't notice me. Hey, look at that person over there. They did it all wrong. God says, look, because of the way that um, sin has affected you, this is how it's going to disrupt the relationship that you have for one another. And that's particularly um, in the languages he begins to pronounce the effects of the fall. People often call it the curse. And I don't think it's so much a curse like God's like, now I'm going to make all these bad things happen. He's just saying it's prophetic. Because of the choices you make, this is what's going to happen to you. And let me read it for you um, again. Uh, he says, beginning in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe, and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And as theologians um, have reflected on that passage, they said, isn't it fascinating how what was good and healthy in Adam and Eve's relationship gets so horribly twisted by choosing to be self-centered? Um, as I suspect uh, Dick talked about last week, uh when Adam was alone, right, God brought the whole of creation in front of him and said, so choose something that's like you. And Adam went out naming animals, and he's identified. And nothing, nothing was quite right. He may have found a best friend, but it wasn't quite what he was hoping for yet. And God creates Eve uh, for Adam. And the language they write is, God created somewhat of eminent uh, equal status and demeanor to be a helper for Adam. And the word helper has none of the connotations of like, you know, are you mommy's little helper today, which usually means you're going to create a lot of work, but it's going to be cute because we can work together, right? The sense of helper then is the one who supplies everything that I don't have, right? It's usually used in the Old Testament of God is my help and my strength. God is my help and my salvation. Where I'm weak, he's strong. Where I can't save myself, he can save me. It was used in other contexts for um, military allies. When I can't defend myself, you'll help defend me. So Eve was the equivalent person in eminence and importance to Adam in value, and she would provide everything that he could not provide himself. And so together, they were whole and able to do everything that God had called them to do, right? They were incredible allies and partners together. And God says, you've chosen to act selfishly, so everything that should have been about partnership is now going to be reduced to manipulation. And he says, right, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. Now, that sounds actually kind of nice, right? You're going to actually want to be with your husband, which is a fantastic thing in a marriage. But the sense there a little bit is, um, Eve, uh, you are going to have this overwhelming need to find your identity and um, to be enmeshed with your husband. right? And what partially what theologians have looked at is women, often, we talk about, uh, are, tend to be a little bit more relational than men, um, some of it by genetics, and a lot of it by culture. And rather than healthy relationship, there's a sense of your desire is going to be for husband. You're going to be unable to find your identity until you're in a relationship. You're going to be un- unable to find wholeness until you find that person, right? And we hear that all the time, right, from all the uh, single people on especially romantic comedies. are like, I'm unfulfilled. I'm unsatisfied until I can find that man in my life. Um, and so. Uh, There's going to be a tendency to use emotional tools to manipulate, um, to control. And I think, uh, as I've talked to my women friends on staff, uh, my family, uh, many women have said, yeah, it's true. You learn from a very early age as a woman how to manipulate uh, using emotions in your body to get what you want. And I watch it all the time on college and university campuses, Right, women who offer their bodies as a way of controlling men. who are controlled by it by that same right? Women who emotionally manipulate the men they're with—it's so much less than God int- intended women to have and to be. And then God, and then God says, "And what's going to affect on you, Adam, is um, if Eve is going to be enmeshing people out of a self-seeking need for validation and identity, Adam, um, you're going to be just self-serving. Adam will rule over you." And part of what uh, some theologians have. Reflecting on is rather than um, using his strength in ways that advance their mission together, Adam's going to use it to dominate, right? Rather than protecting and advancing things, he's just going to seek to control using physical strength or other tools at his disposal. And um, none of that is what God seems to intend, right? This is the effects of the fall. And so some people often say, well, you know, men should be leaders, blah 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 blah, and because God said we're supposed to rule. But this is the impact of sin in their life. Um, Adam and Eve blame one another and blame uh, the snake and they're being self-protective. Adam, Eve's desire is going to be for Adam, and she's going to try to mesh him into these relationships so she can control him and find identity. So she's going to be self-seeking. Adam is going to try to rule over Eve and dominate by, and, by being rather self-serving. This is so different from the mutuality, partnership, and God-mission-focused relationship that he intended men and women to have. He created them to be partners and equals together, advancing the mission together, finding identity in one another so that unlike any other being in the universe, they go, you're the one I want to be with. You're the one who's exactly like me. Instead, we end up in these petty relationships where we blame one another, try to trap one another, and try to dominate one another. What's the experience that we're looking for in scripture, worship, and community there then? How does the church help us fight the effects of sin? In our relationships, partially, I think Scripture does a fantastic job of allowing us to see and hear the brutal realities of human relationships, which are distorted by self-protection, self-seeking, and self-serving choices. Right? I mean, if you look at the people who are relating the married couples in Scriptures, you got to really take a deep breath before you decide to get married. I mean, you right? I mean, it's people manipulating one another, buying and selling one another. Um, It's you know the wives of um, Jacob, like okay, I'm going to buy the husband tonight. Because I'm going to offer these things. It's right. It's that crazy relationship between uh, Abraham and Sarah. Like I can't have. Baby, why don't you sleep with my maid? I think it'll work out fine. Abraham's like, okay, thanks. That sounds great. Um, I mean, it's David and Bathsheba. I mean, right? If you look, the Bible is actually a far better handbook on bad marriages than it is on good marriages. If you look at kind of, and then like, we we used to joke when I worked for a publishing company, could we produce a Bible study guide the dysfunctional families of the Bible because the parent-child relationships are just crazy as well. What I love about it though, is that scripture tells me the truth about what human relationships look like when sin enters the world. I find myself in those stories, right? I know and totally understand the temptation to be unfaithful, to be manipulative, to be self-seeking, self-serving. Uh, self-protective. And page after page I hear my own story. Um, Part of what scripture also does though, right, is it gives us the resources to fight um, the cultural stories which reinforce the sins that we uh, are told in our culture. That I can find my identity uh, in being a man and being strong and being in charge, rather than seeking partnership and mutuality, learning to uh, submit. In a mutual way with my wife, that my wife can find her needs more than to find her identity in just having a man. Uh, but who is she called to, uh, to live out God's image, and God's call? And that again, that's why we meet together in small groups in missional communities uh, here at church on a Sunday, because part of what we help one another see is, as hard as the impacts of sin may be in our family lives in our relationships as men and women. This is the place where we practice and reframe our relationships around partnership and mutual submission. Um, I had a great conversation Friday night. I was um, up at Cornell University speaking, and the faculty advisor of the fellowship is this delightful man. He's just retired, so he's probably in his late 60s at this point. Um, He was just telling me a story of uh, the class he was going to teach this uh, semester was canceled due to the illness of his friend. And so it created an opportunity for him to go do a research project in Nebraska. So he told his wife with great excitement, this is going to be great. Like, you and I can drive from Cornell all the way to Nebraska. We could stop and visit family along the way, take a kind of vacation. and It'll be a long road trip. It could take two or three months. It's going to be fantastic. And she came and said, after this hour, I can't bear the thought of being in a car or visiting that many people that much. I'd like to fly. So he went off and prayed, and he felt like God was saying to him, she's your wife submit to one another out of reverence lord so he came back the next day you know i, I was thinking and praying about it um that's my, let's fly if you'd rather fly and she said well you know i was thinking about it let's go ahead and drive <laughs> he said we've gone about now three different times on that question in the last two weeks And i said man what a, what a great academy in continuing to learn how to mutually submit to one another and each other's needs right I mean, it's a small thing, should we fly or should we drive, but in the larger context of being Christians, it was how do I put your needs above mine? Right? Every married couple knows you struggle with it from the moment you start your marriage, and you, as far as I've heard from all my married friends, never stop wrestling with that question. That's why we need to be in community. I needed to hear that story to remind myself as I drove home that night and got in at 2 a.m., Um, That the first thing I needed to do was to figure out how could I serve my wife in the morning? Because we had a birthday party for both of our daughters, so we had 21 kids and 24 adults. uh, In kind of a crazy disaster, like right, and I could have just gone, I'm really tired. I did ministry all last night. I got home at 2 a.m. and now I'm awake at 7. Leave me alone. Um, I needed to hear the story of a senior saint reminding me of what it meant to live in mutual submission. To be a partner together to accomplish what God called us to do. Um, That's why we meet in community. The last thing I want to point out is not only does sin, that self-centeredness, affect our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, but in a small um, kind of side comment, but pretty critical for the way that we actually experience life, the fall also impacts our relationship with creation. Um, rather than stewarding, we really exploit it. And that's what God seems to be getting at. Look again at what he says in verse, the top of verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And with pain, you will give birth to children. And then to Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Um, Isn't it fascinating? What should be a moment of life-giving and joy is now turned to toil and pain for both men and women, Right? The birth of a child should be an unmitigated, delightful, joy-giving experience. And it is at one level, but the reality, what God says is, um, it's now every joyful, life-giving moment you have as a human race is going to be filled with pain. At the moment of giving birth, you're going to experience pain. The day-to-day experience of wrestling life out of the ground is going to be cause for pain and exhaustion for you because of the sinful choices that you've made. Um, right at worship we were reminded part of the amazing thing is when you read genesis is how good the world was supposed to be and how god pre-prepared a garden for them to dwell in and to um, work in to be fruitful to multiply to make delight and beauty and what god says because you're sinful all that's just going to get twisted right and we experience that all the time don't we Wall Street should be the best opportunity for the world to figure out how to mobilize the vast financial resources that we have, both financial and natural, and use it to create human flourishing, to actually make human life better. Right? How could we do that in an efficient way, where more people could have the basic things that they need and everybody enjoy um, the fruits of God's creation? And none of us believe that's what people are really about there. Education should be more than just managing children for six hours a day and desperately preparing them for the next test so they can grind out another thing. It should be an opportunity to create delight and imagination and experience. It should be preparing them, not just to be intellectually prepared, but morally prepared for the world. And all of us know and have great sympathy for teachers who have been reduced to, I just have to cram this last thing in. And if, that, if I'm lucky, half the time I'm just trying to manage the behavior problems in my class. Right, medicine uh, and the helping professions, psychology, should be designed to actually help human beings flourish, to make our bodies, hearts, and minds uh, the most um, healthy and um, active and engaged people we could possibly be. But mostly, all we're doing is, um, well, if you're actually working the profession, uh, managing how you're going to managing the insurance companies, and so many of our treatment decisions are based on what will help me avoid a lawsuit rather than uh, help human flourishing. Right? We could go on and on and on. Um, when did music, art, literature, movies, and drama cease to be places for inspiration, for opening the horizons of our eyes, rather than just merely tempting us to just a little bit more lust and encouraging us toward a little bit more violence. Right? Everything about the world gets turned inward when we live that way. And rather than stewarding a really fruitful environment, we end up thinking that what we should do is exploit a very broken creation. And it leads to the environmental disasters that we live with on a daily basis. What does scripture do for us in this setting? How does preaching and uh, Bible study and meditation on scripture help us? In part, what scripture does, it tries to reframe our imagination around these things. From beginning to end, the scriptures remind us this is not how it was intended to be. We were designed for more than that. We were called to do more than that. The longing and dissatisfaction that we may have with our current jobs is not because or just because you aren't paid enough, or your boss isn't good enough. But in every aspect of our lives, we're living with the frustration that these jobs aren't actually doing what God intended them to do to glorify him and to encourage human flourishing, not just in the religious thing, but in the everyday things as well. And so you begin to see people use their lives in different ways in scripture. You begin to see God's call. In a small way, I'm going to try to redeem this family, and then I'm going to redeem a nation, and I'm going to redeem a whole world until one day all of creation will be made new again. And it opens up our eyes to a slightly different way to work and to act and live. And we gather again in small groups and give testimony to one another, reminding ourselves there's a little bit more than everybody else would have you believe. That ennobling conversation that you had with a student where you gave them a little bit of hope and passed them a little bit of lunch money. That one time the doctor takes an extra five minutes just to hold your hand and reassure you, right? that small exchange of kindness as you're purchasing that um, piece of meat at the grocery store where you expressed a little bit of graciousness to the slow-moving cashier who looks like they're practicing Tai Chi rather than checking you out. <laughs> and you give them dignity for a job that's bone-crushing to them. All of those point to a slightly greater reality that provides a little bit of dignity, a little bit of hope, an opportunity for transformation. What all these things do, right? is they challenge us, just like the devotional says, to stop looking at ourselves, and to look up and out, to look back to God and go, I could orient myself and my life around you, and to look out into the vast world that he's called us to, to the people who he's called us to, and say, if I could focus on you all and the world that God has made and God himself, I'd be free from recapitulating and reliving Adam and Eve's Fatal choice every minute of every day of every month of every year that I'm left to live. One of the experiments I had the students do at Cornell, and it's with this I'll leave you, is I suspect like most of us have smartphones. And if you have a smartphone, you know um, you can take your own picture really easily. Um, selfies have been quite the big amount of my news, and it seems like we spend a lot of time just looking in the camera, looking at ourselves being very selfish people. How does it affect me? What do I look like? How do I pose myself? For those of you who post a lot on Facebook and Twitter, you know exactly right, we try to pretend like it's a casual shot wherever we're at, but we're really carefully making sure that we look exactly like we want ourselves to look in those places. And if you think about it, it's really uncomfortable to keep looking at yourself. But we can't stop ourselves from doing it. The great thing about a smartphone is there's usually a button which allows you to uh, flip the camera over. So that rather than looking at yourself, you can look at the people out there. And you can begin to capture them and the world that God made. And if you're wise, you'll take look up and out and look at God and the world that he made us. And that's ultimately what scripture tries to have us do every time we come to it here on a Sunday and in our small groups and in those quiet morning or evening hours when you open the scripture. The world is much bigger and grander because we worship a much bigger and grander God. And then we sit together and we sing together to remind ourselves, this is true. This actually is what God said. And it is good. And we can live our lives around it. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm very aware of... um, huge series of selfish choices I've made, even in this day alone, and um, the self-centered way I've approached my day of how to organize, uh, in my case, family and children to make sure I could get here on time to accomplish things I need to do before I go on to do the next thing. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on all of us. That you would help us turn from self and turn from you. And would our great model be Jesus Christ, who didn't consider equality with you something to be grasped and gave himself to become a servant and died in our place and on our behalf, giving everything that he was for the mission that you've called him to, um, to be the person that you called him to, um, and then ultimately to look to you for our sake. Change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.